0: Welcome to the Question Community Broadcast. The Question is a new disruptive community that provides a gathering place for those who wonder about our complex selves, our complex world, our complex universe. We are a non-religious and inclusive community that explores the many questions surrounding truth in order to encourage you on the important journey to find your own answers. The Question community gathers every third Sunday evening at Redbush Tea and Coffee Company in the Kensington neighborhood of Calgary, starting at 7. Information on the community is available at our website, www.thequestion.ca. You can also join the community online at our Facebook page, which is The Question, and on Twitter, at TQCOM with two M's. You're now going to hear some highlights from our community gathering where the question is asked through original arts and music, as well as thought-provoking presentations. This is Frederick Tamagi.
1: Does everyone know who this is? Nobody knows? Okay, sure. Einstein, right? Albert Einstein. He's the father of modern theoretical physics, right? Master of light and gravity, splitter of atoms, bender of space, explorer of the event horizon to other universes. Generations have been influenced and altered by the overwhelming power of his scientific discoveries. Einstein was, inarguably, a force of nature, yes? Right? A tornado. I'd call him a tornado. How about this guy? Who's this? Steve Jobs. Jobs. Visionary inventor, pioneering tech designer, master of complex simplicity, mystical creator of needs we didn't even know we had. It would be difficult to identify someone who has influenced this generation's image of itself more than Steve Jobs. Last month, we discussed the inevitable uploading of our digital existence into the cloud. Well, almost single-handedly, Steve Jobs created the tech-device revolution that is driving our digital relocation into the cloud. And even more, this always makes me feel strange to think this, but Steve Jobs' dominance over our tech landscape is so powerful that regardless of whether we believe that this path is toward destruction or salvation, and there's people on either side of that, either way, we can't seem to escape Steve Jobs' tech path any more than we can escape Einstein's physics. So just like Albert Einstein, Steve Jobs was inarguably a force of nature, yes? A tornado. Okay, any idea who these people are? Don't blame you, I didn't know who they were either. Okay, so well, clockwise from the left, the left side, they are Hermann Einstein, Cartoon, Jacob Einstein. Sorry, I could not find one single photograph of poor Uncle Jacob. Max Talmi, Paul Jobs, and Robert Palladino. Now, I know that some of the surnames are giving me away, but I introduce them to you anyway, possibly for the very first and only time that this will happen to you. And even that is deeply relevant for tonight, because after tonight, it's likely that their names will quietly slip back into the anonymity of your attention spans. But I do hope that their common story will linger in another part of your consciousness, the part of you that dreams, the part of you that seeks to know who you are, the part of your consciousness where the question, who am I, is asked and then asked again. Now, Hermann Einstein, was Albert's father. When Albert was five years old, Herman gave him a simple compass as a birthday present. The compass spawned an early and lifelong fascination with electromagnetism and gravity in the young Albert. His fondest memory of this gift from his father was the idea of gravity. Now, these are his words. The idea of gravity as something deeply hidden. In his early school years, Albert was not an outstanding student. Some of you may have heard this about him. Now, this was mostly due to his below-average enthusiasm for conventional teaching methods and teachers. But at age 10, he was introduced to his uncle Jacob Einstein, who was an engineer, and Max Talmy, a close family friend. Einstein later confirmed that these two relationships altered the course of his intellectual life. Uncle Jacob introduced young Albert to the world of algebra. Max Talmy shared with young Albert his love of philosophy and Euclidean geometry. Now, they both tutored young Albert and gave him advanced textbooks and philosophers' writings to challenge him and motivate him to learn. So by age 12, Albert had taught himself advanced Euclidean geometry, and by age 15, he was competent in graduate-level differential calculus. The philosophical inspiration that he received from Max Taumann spawned a deep appreciation of the infinite, non-scientific mysteries of the universe that he was destined to study and then uncover for all of us. Now, is anyone here starting to feel the barely perceptible vibrations of butterfly wings? Paul Jobs was Steve's adoptive father. He'd been an engine room machinist in the U.S. Coast Guard, and he had an aptitude for tinkering, fixing, and building all manner of things, from cars to appliances to cabinets. From a very young age, Steve admired his father's craftsmanship and attention to detail, and was eager to hang out with him, to watch and learn. By the time he was 10 years old, Steve was fascinated by design, craft, and in particular, electronics. Even at this early age, Steve's interest in electronics went way beyond fixing toasters with his father. And he actually befriended a couple of engineers at age 10. He befriended a couple of engineers who lived in the neighborhood with them. In his biography, Steve related an early experience with his father that inspired the personal revolution that he brought to the future world of tech design. He was helping his father build a new fence around their yard. It was tedious, boring work for the young Steve, and when they reached a part of the fence that would be more or less hidden from view, an impatient Steve wanted to take some shortcuts in the building process for that section that wouldn't be seen. His father stopped him immediately, much to Steve's frustration. Steve remembers his father saying that they were going to make the part of the fence that no one could see as beautiful as the part of the fence that everyone could see. Steve's irritated reply was, Come on, come on, no one will know. His father looked at him and replied, You'd know. Now this moment affected Steve Jobs so completely that his future obsession with design detail at Apple is now the stuff of legends. Every circuit, every processor, every compartment inside of an Apple device had to satisfy the same detailed triangulation of utility, simplicity, and beauty that defined the outside of the device. Here's a quote from Steve Jobs when he was CEO of Apple. You're a carpenter making a beautiful chest of drawers. You're not going to use a piece of plywood on the back, even though it faces the wall and no one will ever see it. You'll know it's there. So you're going to use an equally beautiful piece of wood on the back. For you to sleep well at night, the aesthetic, the quality, has to be carried all the way through. Now, this is a Steve Jobs quote, no doubt. But it's not Steve Jobs speaking. This is Paul Jobs speaking about building a fence. Okay, let me introduce you to Robert Palladino. For 18 years, Most of the 50s and 60s, he was a Roman Catholic priest and a Trappist monk, living a cloistered life in a New Mexico monastery. During this period, Palladino served as a master scribe, handwriting documents and books with beautiful and diverse calligraphy. The Trappist monastic order is, among other things, also committed to a vow of silence. So for 18 years, Palladino not only practiced his craft in cloistered isolation, but was also practicing in complete silence. Then in 1968, some of his calligraphic work was noticed by the Dean of Reed College in Portland, Oregon. He offered Palladino a position at Reed teaching calligraphy.
0: Palladino made the
1: decision to exchange his old life of isolation and silence for a new life of community and communication, and he accepted the position. Then, in 1972, Steve Jobs enrolled at Reed College and started attending Palladino's very popular calligraphy class. Now, due to limited finances, Steve was forced to drop out of Reed after only six months. But he continued to audit Palladino's class for free until the end of the term. Now, why would Steve's very brief, ill-fated academic interlude with the Trappist Monk be important at all? At least some of you probably know why. It's because Robert Palladino's ancient craftsmanship with pen and ink inspired Steve Jobs to invent computer font typography. The introduction of fonts helped transform computers from cold, soulless data machines to creative personal expression devices. How important do you think that is to the story of technology? Steve Jobs was unleashed on the world, like the tornado he was, and he will be remembered forever. But after tonight, Paul Jobs and Robert Palladino will quietly fade back into obscurity. So quietly, in fact, that the faint flapping of butterfly wings will be heard.
0: This is Hello Moth. So this is a song about transients. Me. And I was numb before I knew soul indentations from. Something we did not intend. We stood by and watched moments
1: bend. So don't be so Nobody can
0: hear me. There's no point. There's nothing there. You can try to show what nobody can see. You. The way you fall into the air.
1: But then it's gone, brief as the
0: sunrise is gone. With every breath we'll see it born into the arms
1: of the born. Don't you be so nobody can hear you. There's no point, there's
0: nothing there you can cry. when you?
1: Luther King is generally considered the iconic lion of the American Civil Rights Movement in the 20th century. don't think there's any doubt about that. You'd have to be living in a cave not to have heard at least an excerpt from his incredible 1963 I Have a Dream speech, right? spoken to 250,000 people during the most famous march on Washington in American history. Just two years after that powerful speech, the historic Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed. It's considered the single most important civil rights legislation ever passed in the United States. Martin Luther King Jr. is a revered American hero and global martyr, tragically assassinated in 1968. He is the only American citizen, apart from George Washington, to have a national holiday actually named for him. He was a force of nature, if there ever was one. He was a tornado, if there ever was one. Does anyone know who this is? Sorry? Way to go. Rosa Parks. This is Rosa Parks, okay? In December of 1955, Rosa was a seamstress and a part-time secretary for the local chapter of the NAACP in Montgomery, Alabama. Every weekday, she rode the Montgomery City Lines bus to and from her job, and in each trip she obeyed a municipal law, passed in 1900, that established segregated seating on city buses for white and colored passengers. Now, it was a complicated and corrupt law, designed, of course, to favor white passengers, even though 75% of the daily bus ridership was colored. Now, the law went something like this. It's worth understanding if you've never been exposed to this kind of institutional racism. The designated areas for white and colored passengers were marked by movable signs that could be shifted depending on how full the bus was. Generally, the first few rows were reserved for white passengers. Colored passengers normally sat in the middle to back rows of the bus. If the front rows filled up with white passengers, colored passengers were expected to move back toward the back of the bus to make room. If the bus ever filled up to capacity, both sitting and standing, colored passengers were expected to get off the bus immediately to make room for any white passengers getting on. This is really interesting. Another complication was that colored passengers were prohibited from sitting or standing across the aisle from white passengers in the same row. Okay, Symbolically, White passengers wanted colored passengers out of their sight and behind them. You couldn't even occupy the same row with them. On December 1, 1955, at 6 p.m., Rosa Parks boarded the bus at the end of her workday, paid her fare, and sat in the aisle seat of the first row, marked colored only. The bus gradually filled with passengers as it progressed on its road, and eventually all of the white-only seats filled up. With more white passengers coming onto the bus, the bus driver got up and moved the colored-only sign to the row directly behind Rosa. By this time, now there were three other black passengers occupying the row that Rosa was seated in. The bus driver stood over the four black passengers and demanded that they vacate their seats and move to a row behind the newly placed marker sign. Okay, you with me so far? Okay, I'm going to let Rosa tell you the rest of the story. These are Rosa's words. When that white driver stepped back toward us, when he waved his hand and ordered us up and out of our seats, I felt a determination to cover my body like a quilt on a winter night. The bus driver said, you all better make it light on yourselves and let me have those seats. The driver wanted us to stand up, the four of us. We didn't move at the beginning, but then he says again, let me have these seats. And the other three people moved, but I didn't. Now, Rosa actually did move to take the window seat. She didn't get up to move to the colored section. I thought of Emmett Till, and I just couldn't go back. Okay, I'm going to stop here and explain to you just what she meant by I thought of Emmett Till. Emmett Till was a 14-year-old black youth from Chicago who was visiting Mississippi. Earlier that year in 1955, he was visiting some relatives. He was 14 years old. Emmett Till was murdered by being lynched. And he was lynched because he allegedly flirted with a young white girl outside of a drugstore in Mississippi. The two white men that were arrested in connection with Emmett Till's death were put on trial in the summer of 1955, a few months before the incident with Rosa took place. They were tried, and they were acquitted of the crime. Three months later, in the fall of 1955, the two men were interviewed by a national magazine. It wasn't Life magazine, but it was a magazine like that. And in this interview, they admitted to the crime. They admitted that they did it, and explained why they did it. Now, because of Mississippi's Double Jeopardy laws, they could not be retried for the murder of Emmett Till. So they went away scot-free, even though they admitted in a national magazine that they had kidnapped him and lynched him. So this was the backdrop, and this is what Rosa Parks was thinking as she sat on the bus. She was thinking of Emmett. We'll continue with Rosa's words. The bus driver said, why don't you stand up? I don't think I should have to stand up. The bus driver then left the bus to call the police. When he returned and saw me still sitting, he asked me if I was going to stand up. And I said, no, I'm not. And he said, well, if you don't stand up, I'm going to have you arrested. And then I said, you may do that. Rosa said later that I would have to know once and for all what rights I had as a human being and a citizen. That day, Rosa Parks was arrested for quietly refusing to give up her seat on a city bus. No agitation, no resistance, no commotion, no speeches, with perhaps only 30, 40 people who were on the bus as witnesses to the event. She was no force of nature, okay? She was no tornado. But here's what happened next. As a result of this simple, quiet act of defiance, In December 1955, the newly appointed pastor of Dexter Street Baptist Church in Montgomery heard about Rosa's peaceful stand for human rights on that bus. He was just 25 years old, recently graduated from a seminary, and even more recently married with a brand new baby daughter, just starting out in a normal family life, really. He met Rosa Parks and others who were connected with her, including some members of the local NAACP. Now, for reasons that we now understand so well, the young pastor became one of the chief organizers of the now-famous Montgomery Bus Boycott, which lasted over 381 days and involved over 40,000 black bus passengers. Remember that I said that black passengers represented 75% of the bus company's business? For 381 days, they sat out and wouldn't ride the bus. For over a year, these colored protesters refused to ride on the city buses. Some of the protesters walked up to 20 miles per day just to get to their jobs or their homes. During this boycott, the pastor and other community leaders brought a civil suit against the city of Montgomery and the state of Alabama, challenging the bus segregation law. The case went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, and on November 13, 1956, a little less than a year later, the Supreme Court ruled that the bus segregation law was unconstitutional and they ordered Alabama to desegregate busing statewide. Now, this historic ruling set the precedent for all future constitutional protections from racial discrimination and set the stage for the modern U.S. civil rights movement. The young pastor who led the bus boycott never looked back it Was Martin Luther King, Jr. Okay. He became the force of nature. He became the tornado. But first, Rosa Parks became the butterfly. I began writing this presentation with the story about my friend. And I ended up at the story of Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King. It turns out that this is for a reason. Martin Luther King's most famous words are, I have a dream. Ironically, my friend is directing her steps and struggling to stay in the path motivated by those very same words? And who would not be motivated by the words, I have a dream? How many of us have shouted those same words in the deafening silence of our private struggles, right? Our private aspirations, our private dreams for ourselves. Now, many of us believe that to have a dream for ourselves, we must first choose our dream and then own it until it comes true or doesn't. We own our dream until we succeed or fail in our quest to fulfill it. And just like my friend, or Martin Luther King, we are so committed to the choice that we've made. We first choose our dream and then follow it because we own it, because we believe that it's ours, like some kind of a sacred possession. But do we stop to think that even if owning the dream makes it ours, could it still be possible that our dream is not us? And if the dream we own is not actually who we are, is it possible that our dream owns us? Let me put this another way. Uh, I was moved to write this presentation because of a powerful conversation that made me think about the powerful connection we draw between our dreams and our destiny. I think that's why my friend, and so many others, including myself, can be so harsh in our self-judgments when our dreamed-of destiny seems farther away rather than closer to us. Now, apart from acknowledging the obvious drawbacks of continual self-doubt and self-loathing, which many of us experience, me included, I couldn't help but ask questions about the dream itself. Let me repeat this, okay? Just because the dream is ours, does it automatically mean that the dream is us? Is our dream a reflection of our true identity? Is our dream truly an answer to the question, Who am I? Okay, which brings us to the question for tonight. Butterfly or tornado? Now that you've heard some brief stories of real-life human butterflies and tornadoes, are you now thinking about your own dreams and how you choose them? Now, if you're really honest with yourself, would you really choose the dream of becoming Uncle Jacob, for whom I could not even find a photograph, instead of Albert Einstein? Would you really choose the dream of becoming Paul Jobs instead of Steve Jobs? Would you really choose the dream of becoming Rosa Parks instead of Martin Luther King? Would you really choose the dream of becoming a butterfly instead of a tornado? Now, even though I expressed some fake judginess tonight, you know that I'm not standing here to criticize, diminish, or devalue your dreams. I mean, how could I devalue something that's so precious and so inspirational to you? You also know that I'm not standing here urging you to abandon your dreams or simply walk away from it all as my friend expressed in very short-term frustration. What I am standing here for tonight is the simple and beautiful lesson of Jacob Einstein, Paul Jobs, and especially Rosa Parks. I said earlier that Martin Luther King Jr. was a tornado. Don't think you can disagree. Uh, He was an intensely driven and committed dream seeker. But Rosa Parks, by all reports, was pretty much King's polar opposite. And here he is, in front of a quarter of a million people, saying, that I have a dream. Here she is, sitting by herself on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. So she was King's polar opposite. But on that day, in December 1955, on that bus, Rosa was not seeking her dream. Okay? But the dream sought her, and found her, chose her. So, I want to leave you with some final questions and some final thoughts about dreams and destiny. How did you choose the dream you're following? How tightly are you bound to your dream? Do you struggle with living for your dream? Do you wonder if your dream is a reflection of your true identity or just a decision about what you wish your identity to be? Do you care if your destiny is to be a butterfly or a tornado? Okay, so you've chosen your dream, that's up to you, that's up to you for sure. But maybe, just maybe, it's worthwhile to open yourself to the possibility that just like Rosa Parks, your real dream may actually choose you. Maybe it's worthwhile to wonder if being bound to your dream is actually a form of bondage. Maybe it's worthwhile thinking about the difference between living for your dream And living from your dream. Maybe your dream can become you and not just yours. Maybe your dream is just your decision but not your identity. And maybe your identity is your real destiny. So maybe, just maybe, finding your identity should be your dream. And that's how a dream could choose you. That's how a butterfly gets set off a tornado. That's the end of the presentation. Thanks for being so patient.
0: Thank you for listening. If you're interested in joining the question community, we meet every third Sunday evening at Redbush Tea and Coffee Company in the Kensington neighborhood of Calgary starting at seven. You can participate in the online discussion on our Facebook page, which is The Question, or on Twitter at TQCOM. That's at T-Q-C-O-M-M. Our website is www.thequestion.ca. Thanks again for listening, and remember that our answers are only possible because of our questions.